Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, operational, and security issues up today with representation from all parties involved so we can take the people that are facing real-world problems and have a, a real conversation about them. I'm Ken Toller, representing security, and I'm joined again by my wonderful co-hosts, Simon Dolo for development slash product engineering, and Jameson Colburn for DevOps. Ahoy, hoy. Hey, folks, glad to be here. Hey. Yes, excited about this one. We had some technical difficulties on the last episode and at the beginning of this episode, uh, but we think we've got them resolved at this point, and so we're going to dig into an interesting topic today, the OWASP Top 10. Now, usually this is a security-focused topic. There's a lot of information about it on the web. Uh, there's, there's a ton of security talks around the OWASP Top 10. There's uh, explaining how, how to exploit them, what they are, how to defend against them. Uh, but the, and we've, we've sort of avoided talking about it on, on the podcast because it's very security-centric. But uh, Jameson sort of brought this up to, to me, and I thought it would be interesting to get a take from uh, the engineering slash uh, DevOps side around where, where you all sort of run into the OWASP top 10. So I think um, what I would just like to do is I'll introduce it really quick. Uh, you know, OWASP top 10 is the Open Web Application Security Project, has a ton of information around application security, uh, not just the top 10, but how to defend your applications, uh, provide a secure SDLC. There's tools and standards and um, lots of research done and from the community. Uh, and the top 10 is this awareness document that explains the common categories of web application vulnerabilities. There's also the mobile top 10 um, and some other sort of interesting projects that, that have come out of that. Uh, and I have my, my own opinions on it, but uh, Jameson, maybe you can just tell us you know, how, you, how you came about the top 10 uh, and what made you want to talk about it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, how, how it kind of came up was, you know, I was reorientating myself with the DevSecOps maturity model, the, the OWASP uh, model. And as part of that, you know, it got me thinking that, you know, we've hit on a lot of things in the OWASP uh, top 10, but we haven't really discussed it, right? And so I thought it might be interesting uh, to, to kind of walk through it, talk about you know, different perspectives on it, you know, our, our, our varying experiences, obviously a very security heavy topic, but I think Simon and myself kind of have a unique perspective, a kind of maybe outsider's perspective on it where, you know, we've brushed up against it in the past, uh, but never really, like never really took a deep dive into it. And so um, figured it was worth exploring. And, and as I said, you know, we've brushed up against a number of the topics already, um, just never explicitly called them out. So. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the, in the pre-show about how the the top 10 you, you came about it through the DevSecOps maturity model which is another project from OWASP I can't remember how mature that is at this point but you were obviously looking for something uh, to measure DevSecOps against or your DevOps security against and uh, sort of happened upon the OWASP top 10 and I think that that's not uncommon the OWASP top 10 is sometimes used as this framework for measurement of maturity and that's not really how it's designed which is part of i don't know my my take on it and and my problem with it in the industry like i love that we're raising awareness around all of these all of these weaknesses and these categories of weaknesses uh, but the problem that it has for me is the way that it's been adopted inside of organizations and inside of companies they 
are sort of using this as a measurement of how good they are at detecting vulnerabilities. And as a result, products and vendors harp on discovering the OWASP top 10 or defending against the OWASP top 10, which is a, a good thing to measure uh, because you want to make sure that you're covering things that are the most common, but it's not the end all be all of your application security program. I just find it interesting that it, you sort of came through it in that avenue. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I mean, I, I would say my experience with the OWASP top 10 is, is pr primarily a lot in that light where um, a lot of it has been by virtue of folks, you know, saying, hey, yeah, we need to secure these 10 things um, and let's just throw a WAF in front of it. And hey, we have these rules that say they cover the OWASP top 10 and, you know, that's kind of the, you know, that's all we need, right? Like, you know, and, and maybe that works well for for WordPress or something, right? Where it's like a very well-known application and like, you know, it's, it's pretty standard. Um, obviously you probably still want to take a closer look at your implementation, but you know, for your, your custom applications or applications you develop in house, uh, I, I don't think WAF rules are going to cover everything under the sun, right? Like it, it maybe, you know, WAF is good as part of your security model, but um, there needs to be a little bit more than that, you know? So. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um... Oh, yeah, I think looking at it as a as a checklist for success is something that's scary, especially with how often it gets updated. And to give background on where I first discovered it was very early on. You know, I heard, I believe it was you know someone on a security team talking about the loss, and I had no idea what that meant. Uh, it's just this weird terminology that was not familiar with. So obviously, you know, I started digging uh, and and started looking at like, oh, okay, cool. So like data sanitization, validation, authentication. Like, okay, cool. These are all things that make sense. I should have them. Uh, and and yeah, I definitely agree with Ken. Like it's a little bit scary. I'm hoping companies don't look at these top ten and say, "Hey, we're done. You know, we we fixed everything. Everything is secure." That's that's kind of like saying, "Hey, have unit tests is all you need." Like there's more to good development than just unit tests. So uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree with y'all. Um, I will say some of the the top ten OWASP items did interest me, uh, which I found surprising. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pretty standard stuff in terms of, um, yeah, like I said, data sanitization and injection and cutting your faces, which I feel like are a very black and white area. You can't really um, argue against those. I think some of the, the ones further down the list are a little bit more gray. And I, those are the ones that I thought were really interesting. They bled into some of the concepts that I value development. Well, let's dig into those. Like, what what were the ones that uh, I guess you, uh, attracted you? It sounds like. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, I think I believe it's number six, uh, which is security con configuration or misconfiguration rather. Um, you know, I think having clean configs all around, whether or not it's it's security and doing it the right way and following the best practice of the framework you're using is really important. Um, the one that really got me is number five, uh, which is broken access control. Um, this one I've, I've seen done so many different ways and so many different orgs and apologies, Ken, I, I, you didn't hear me say this, but I've actually gotten access control requirements from a product manager before that was not coming from a security context. And to me, that's, that's pretty scary. Uh, you know, especially, you know, I've seen internal tools where you start building these rule sets and you start building what maps to a user. And to me, that's, it definitely bleeds into kind of what I think of a good product and that specific scenario always ends up with someone asking for a dot note user. And it, usually by that time, you've gone, you've done, dug such a deep hole and you have so many users that are dependent on your system 
it's really hard to undo those. But at the same time, you're, you're level setting with, with features, things that people need. So those are one of those, this is one of those gray area topics where it's hard to say, just do good user access control. I think that can go a, a lot of different ways. Right. No, I, I think you're hundred percent correct. I want to take two things that you said there and, uh, and roll them back a little bit. The first is around uh, just the category of access control and, and going back to what Jameson talked about, about enforcing things with a WAF. Uh, and then the other one is getting the request from, from uh, you said product management, right? Yeah. So um, the first, uh, you know, we talk about testing for these and um, vendors claiming that they're testing for the OWASP top 10. And access control is an important part of defending against that. Now with any automated scanner, well, unless you're writing a test yourself, that scanner is not going to know what appropriate access control is. And one of the things they do say in the in the category is the your your standard testing tools can test whether authorization exists or whether it doesn't exist. It doesn't know the context in which it exists, and so it can't make a call on whether the access is appropriate. Right. So if a vendor is claiming that, then they then it should be in the something that you can customize the context of. If it's like, we cover all of the OWASP top 10 out of the box, then you should be suspicious, right? Because there's some okay. configuration to something like access control. The second one is getting requirements from, from product management is not a bad thing. I wouldn't ever um, like look at you funny for that. I'd probably ask, you know, how? Because access control is fundamentally a business a business problem. Well, not in all cases. So, you know, if somebody wants root access to all of the servers, yes, security is probably going to have something to say about that. But the organization decides what appropriate access is, who gets it. Security can make recommendations against that, but we really aren't the arbiters of access. You know, we're, we're enforcers. Is that the same thing? Somebody that knows actually <laughs> what arbiters means? Uh, the, uh, you know, we're, we're enforcers of that access. And so if you tell us that, you know, these three teams are the only ones that are going to have administrative access. And, you know, we we say, well, our, our opinion is that they don't and and the business decides that it's appropriate, then our job is to enforce that access control. And that is considered appropriate access by standard or policy or whatever. So if a product manager and you're going through the development of a product and a product manager says, you know, we have these roles uh, and these these are the user stories for those roles and they are supposed to have this access and be able to do these things, then that's actually an appropriate request, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And, and I, I can't, uh, you know, comment enough on, on the, the keyword use is context there. And I think this is, this is definitely why I was interested to these items is because there's some product decisions in here that are going to impact your final decision. And it's not just a, a security decision. Obviously, yes, you want to make sure that you've got security factor. Um, but unlike the other ones that we covered, you know, access to, um, you know, secure data and, you know, resetting passwords and rotating passwords, these aren't things that I feel product can argue against other than having the capacity to do them, which is why I find this one really interesting because you can actually have a really good conversation. Right. And I mean, I think it's, it's summarized pretty well. I just pulled up the page uh, and the impacts very clearly state. You know, the technical impact is attackers acting as users or administrators or users using privileged functions or creating, accessing, updating, or deleting every record. And then it can, you know, 
provides the context and says the business impact depends on the protection needs of the application and the data. Right. So you are, if you're using a scanning tool to do something for this, it needs that context. And so, you know, this is one of those, this is why like talking this out and with your engineers as like from a security perspective, this category is, is something that requires discussion awareness, not something that you throw a scanner at. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a, there's a couple like that, right? Like I think a number of these, you know, with some level of security, either security testing or security tests in your application, or, you know, with, with any, you know, with any number of application security tools, you can probably suss out a number of these, right? But um, like, as I said, access control is one. The other one that I was just thinking about is like number 10, insufficient logging and monitoring, right? Like you can't just say, you can't have a tool that says, yeah, that is a sufficient amount of logging, right? So I think that, you know, it does require something between the ears really to kind of understand and think through um, the requirements and and what that really means for your application. Um, And actually, you know, this is kind of a callback as well to, our earlier episode on logging where, you know, it, it's important to have a logging standard so that everyone knows, especially in the security context of, you know, what, what needs to be logged, what should be logged. Right. And I mean, again, you know, and they, and I think folks tend to like, they go for titles and tend to ignore the, the detail here. But if you jump into that one, you know, it's, it's based that the entire reason that this is in there is that it's based on an industry survey of not having enough logging information. And so it's, it's not that you log every event and now you're good to go. It's that you're logging that you're able to react to that. You're able, you know, where to go when these events occur, you're getting everything that you need out of your logs. It's not necessarily that your, the volume of your logs is lacking. Uh, and the other thing in there is that it, it talks about its detectability is really low, right? So it's it's hard to detect. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Simon, I find it pretty interesting that you sort of latched on to two things that are uh, engineering focused, right? That need to be configured or something that you're handling in day to day. Jameson, what sticks out to you? Is it the same things or something different? Yeah, no, I mean, um, just thinking through number six, right, which was, you know, Simon mentioned security misconfiguration. Um, I was I was thinking about this one in the context. We, we've seen a lot of breaches uh, in recent years uh, in cloud, right, of uh, misconfiguration of access management where, um, you know, a object storage bucket is inadvertently uh, exposed to the world, right? And, and, you know, while that is a, that is a security misconfiguration because that is not the default, you kind of have two categories there, at least from my perspective, is that you have things that are, you know, misconfigured, secure by default, or not even maybe secure by default, but misconfigured and made insecure as a result of a misconfiguration or other things like we've seen in like IoT, right? With, you know, some of the bot networks, uh, botnets over the past couple of years, right? Um, secure, insecure by default, right? Where they've shipped with default credentials. There's nothing mandating that you change them, right? And so, you, it, you know, number six kind of got me thinking about those two things, like, are those two categories of things of like, you have these things that you can misconfigure to make, uh, to expose yourself to this. But then you also have this other category of things that are insecure by default, which is a whole other problem. But um, the really the two that stick out to me um, first is, um, is uh, A2 broken authentication and session management. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that comes to mind there is really like the AWS metadata service. Uh, there's no authentication. Uh, 
there, I mean, there is in the V2 version, but in the original service, there was no authentication. If you were able to hit, let's say, 169.254, 169.254, um, you could get your your uh, IM credentials, right? So, you know, we saw a number of attacks uh, like that, uh, that that would kind of exploit that by, you know, exploiting a vulnerability in, a say, a web application firewall uh, in a the most famous version of that and uh, in, in doing a SSRF attack against that web application firewall or, or SURF, as I think the kids call it now. Uh, but, uh, but basically using that to then pivot to the metadata service and then get credentials, right? And so I think that that's kind of an important one. And, you know, AWS has responded in kind by releasing a second revision of the metadata service that requires uh, authentication, right? And so that, that you know, circumvents that, um, that original problem. Um, Oh man, I've I've had the second one on like the tip of my tongue and I just forgot it. So no, um, no worries, man. I mean, that's, me, that's, I we can dig into the authentication one because, um, I again I find it interesting how how you guys um have have sort of come into the top ten and what you know what uh what memories it triggers when you look at it, and the SSRF attacks were I mean they got a. a Hacker One, all the bug bounty programs are full of SSRF because of these types of um, of issues with uh, server side request forgery, is what that stands for. In case anyone's listening and doesn't know, uh, that's what you can go and try to find and look up. But it's the idea that you know you can go through and uh, and access something or get a response from something that server has access to, to to boil it way down. And like you said, that metadata service is available. It returns sensitive information back. You wouldn't be able to navigate to that page directly, but the server that you're compromising or whatever can. So uh, it returns that data back to you. And you're right. In an unauthenticated service, there's a layer of, there's an assumed trust. And a lot of, um, I guess, industry methodologies, things have, have spun out from this. Not just this uh, problem, but like the whole zero trust thing is a very is something that sort of tries to tackle uh, this as part of that problem, uh, making sure that you're not just it's not security through this implicit trust of a service. You're sort of assuming that everything is is a bad is a potentially bad actor. Um, but yeah, the the authentication piece. There's also you know that sort of bleeds right into the same type of thing with with the broken access control. I mean, I think you could argue that it's that it's both of those uh, from an authorization standpoint, who has access to that metadata, um, you know, and, and trying to, to take care of that in that way. Yeah, and in terms of access, the, the reason why six resonated with me so much in comments to, to what Jameson is saying with improper configuration is sometimes when it's deliberate improper configuration, because I, 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 I do feel like uh, you know, whatever you want to call your environment before you deploy to production. Um, I, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of companies, a lot of engineers basically make that a, a free-for-all uh, and treat it like a test environment. So, you know, you have access to uh, not production credentials, but credentials in this environment. And, and what's so concerning to me is that, you know, the reason why that environment exists is, is to prep for production, right? It's to know that whenever we launch, it's going to be exactly the same and it's really not. So, you know, if you have an incident in this environment, it's easy to handle because you can dig everywhere and you probably have access to things you shouldn't have access to. But, you know, what happens when you hit production and you don't have that level of access? Uh, you know, I've, I've definitely been in situations like that where I find myself, you know, begging to Jameson, please help me. I know you have access. Just, just fix it for me. I have made a huge mistake. 
Yeah. You know, um, and just to sort of bring this back into the context of the podcast, you know, uh, security misconfigurations, authentication issues, authorization is issues, these are things that good good like DevOps hygiene can help to solve for, you know, uh, because yeah. I think part of the reason that this happens, you know, Jameson, you talked about it with uh, security misconfigurations and with the authentication piece. When you're when you're doing this in a DevOps context, context, the the fleet that you're deploying to expose like the the attack surface of that can can potentially be huge if you have a small misconfiguration. Like your infrastructure as code might deploy that misconfiguration to a thousand servers or a thousand containers. And so I think that the, the one, it's easier for us to detect early on. So it's important to sort of bring that back into our previous episode on testing, right? Trying to make sure that, that that is something that you focus on early in the process so that when it does get deployed, these things in the OWASP top 10 are taken care of through an, in an automated way in a way that's scalable. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, I was thinking that as you were talking, or I was like, this is kind of a callback to testing, where, you know, having those good testing practices as part of your infrastructure's code pipeline is important because you can test those, uh, you can identify those misconfigurations early on, because exactly like what you said, right, is that, you know, in the world of cloud, right, infrastructure as code, my mistakes are not, you know, it's not a singular mistake in a lot of cases, right, my mistake could be amplified you know, n number of times based on how many environments I push that out to, right? And, you know, if you have a very automated pipeline, right, that misconfiguration, if not if not caught early, can end up in a lot of places. And yeah, sure, the remediation of it could be quick for the similar reason, but at the same time, it's really making sure that you catch these things early, you catch them before they really uh, result in some sort of breach or security incident. Yeah, and I think, you know, now we have the sort of the power to do that. So I do want to shift gears a little bit, and we, we focused on some I think that are that are great to focus on in this context, right? Things that we can solve for through the application of whatever secure DevOps, DevSecOps uh, practices that we can all work on together. Uh, you know, as when when Simon is aware of of these in a security misconfiguration, it's something that he's looking out for. The automation aspect, uh, something that you know Jameson can sort of tie into. Um, what I will say is that inside of the OWASP top 10, I think that practitioners included, security practitioners included, have a tendency to focus on the meat of the document or the meat of the awareness page, which is the actual OWASP top 10, and ignore their other resources that are available inside of the project, such as, you know, what's next for me as a developer? What's next for me as a tester? What's next for organizations? What's what's next for me as a as a manager of security? And so I would encourage folks to have a look at those too, because that points you to additional resources that you can really take on in your role that expand outside of the OWASP top 10. I would also just work on understanding the document uh, as it's written, as opposed to understanding it from the testing aspect, not to say that it's not important to test for these things, but you know, come at it from the source material and not necessarily at, at it from the, you know, the, the vendor that's testing for it or your, your SAS scanning or DAS scanning or focusing on like A1 injection because it's so fun to exploit, you know, um, <laughs> like try to get into the document, understand where the spirit is, understand the other metrics that are there because that's where this document has value, not necessarily in I'm testing this for, you know, a list of, of check boxes that I can say, yep, I, I, I protect against these things. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm, I've definitely been guilty uh, in doing that. I've definitely looked at the meat. I, uh, I think we talked in the pre-show too, you know, there is a what to do if you're a developer, where to go next. Uh, and that was the last thing on my list to read. So yeah. I totally hear you. Yeah, I mean, and and there's there's great there are great links in there to other OWASP projects that you can look at that sort of expand on the the concepts and ideas here. Uh, there's a list of cheat sheets that you can use that will help against the more granular level of things like injection uh, that you can help to uh, to work for. Uh, but my, one of my favorites in there is the OWASP uh, software assurance maturity model, which is like all around process and managing the program and things of, of that nature, which you know, then you can start, that's a, that's a, something that you can use to sort of measure your organization, right? That's, that's what the purpose of that is. So, uh, or the maturity of your, your organization, there's a lot in there. And I, I think that, you know, unfortunately a lot of it gets missed in the, you know, the fast paced world that we're working in. Um, but just want to raise awareness to that. Any, any of those documents that you all have read or looked into that, stuck out to you in the, I guess we'll call it the, the appendices, the, the sort of edge material. So, I mean, I'm, I'm quickly trying to click through it right now. Uh, obviously never read it before. <laughs> uh, today I learned there's more than 10 things, um, you know, uh, joking aside to a degree, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, definitely it's a lot of good material here. Um, you know, so I, I think there's, there's still some for, for me to probably digest, but, I think it's important. Uh, it's important call out to make uh, just because whenever you're reading any of these things, right? Like there's, you know, um, we spoke about it before, Ken, but the like the SANS top 25 most dangerous software weaknesses, right? And, and things like that, right? Where, you know, it's important to read more than just the titles and, and really kind of understand and internalize what, um, you know, what is being assessed there uh, so that you kind of have a better understanding of the thing holistically as opposed to just the headlines. Yeah, definitely. Simon, what about you, man? Really just uh, along the lines of what you mentioned, the reuse, reusability, you know, the the ways to implement this rather than just think, thinking of this as like a, a, a one-off topic. Um, being in product engineering, that's always the, the first thing for me with anything, you know, how can I make this the easiest, most generalizable thing so that I can do it once and then just be lazy and never have to do it again. So... <laughs> All of the suggestions on that, turning that into my lazy product engineer brain, uh, those are definitely my favorite parts. No, I, I, I do love the document, so I don't want to come down too hard on it to say that it's not useful because it definitely is. I just think that it really needs to be used in the context that it's designed for so that you can take some of these more, uh, I, don't, I won't say advanced, but these more like applicable uh, methods like the maturity model or uh, some sort of analysis or you know, program review or gap analysis and, and sort of use those in those contexts and use the OWASP top 10 in its, in its own and what it's designed for to, to raise awareness. I mean, it's based on surveys, right? It's, you know, what, what are we seeing in the industry so that we can protect against that? Like you guys need to be aware that this is a thing. So, and definitely work through it and make sure that you're doing everything you can to protect against it. But, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be used as like a compliance metric, you know? Um, and I think that that is, that's sort of how it can be seen. And obviously, I, I mean, I think you two have both seen that and, and experienced that too. Yeah, just, just like DevOps, just like product engineering, things are moving so fast. You can't just say that you've read the OAuth stop 10 once and, and know you're safe. Uh, you know, 
things are getting more abstracted and things are getting easier, but that means things are also going to get more dangerous. So it's just good to stay up, up to date. Yeah, definitely. And I think some organizations are doing a, a decent job at doing a WASP top 10 training. But again, I think it focuses on the meat, right? They have these videos and things that say, all right, well, this is what injection is. This is what broken authentication is. Uh, here are some examples of how it's used. So you're now aware of these things. But I think that in order to take that to the next level, it's like, okay, I know about these things. What am I, what do I have to do ab about them now? And I think that that's the piece in uh, role-based training that is sometimes missed is that, okay, I, I have all this knowledge. I've watched these videos and I've, I've, you know, they're, they're cool cartoons and stuff telling me how to do things. And I've clicked on these links and I'm, I'm aware now, uh, but what do I do? How do I defend against it? How do I, you know, if, if this changes, where do I go? Uh, is there anything that I can reference or keep myself up to date with? Is there, you know, a more advanced document? You know, are there other lists like this that I should be aware of? You know, none of that is really, really covered. So, um, I know we've talked about it, uh, you know, sort of at length. Is there anything that you two wanted to cover inside of the OWASP top 10 uh, that maybe we haven't looked at more in depth that we can sort of cover in the tail end of the episode? I, uh, I remember number nine was the one other one I was thinking about. And it, it, it was largely in the context of, uh, of kind of where we are in modern software development and, and, and kind of that abstraction, right? Where you lay a lot of the times in a project, you're layering libraries on libraries and those libraries, use libraries and those um, libraries, use yeah. libraries. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, using components with known vulnerabilities, uh, it starts to, uh, you know, a set like part of that is now you need to assess your applications with some sort of open source scanning tool to ensure that, you know, even if you're not able to fix those vulnerabilities, because it's like seven, eight layers deep, that at least you can uh, introduce some sort of compensating control, some sort of mit uh, mitigation of that vulnerability by virtue of some something doing something else, I guess. Or, you know, if it's in a very egregious case, I guess just removing that library entirely. But it's just that with where we are kind of in modern software development and, and abstraction, uh, I think that that one has become even more relevant every every year because you know just trans transitive dependencies is a real uh, real problem and and you know there you might be using things you have no idea you're using basically. Yeah, Jameson, you you like physically made me clench up mentioning number nine. <laughs> I'm so upset now. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. what it, what's the metric on that? Uh, for I think that's I can't remember what the study was, but somebody ran something around like the percentage of unique code in in the projects today or in on GitHub or something. Is it? Do you guys have that metric anywhere? I think it was like ten percent or something because you're you're just pulling in so many different libraries uh, for for what you're doing. Uh, we'll we'll try to look that up while we're while we're moving here, but. Simon, you, you bring it up, and I think that there's an interesting point there for security folks, too. Uh, I think we usually, you'll see that security is like, oh, I scanned your app, and you're using these outdated versions of, you know, these seven different libraries. And then, you know, engineering teams are like, well, we need those libraries, and if we <laughs> update them, they're going to break everything. So do you want to be responsible for breaking all the apps? And then security's like, you don't no. understand <laughs> Yeah, so I think that there does need there, you know, one of the most exciting. I can't, I won't mention the product, but one of the most exciting things that I saw in a in a product was uh, the ability to detect the 
version that's being used inside of a project and then what methods out of that are being used and then are those methods vulnerable to whatever is flagged in that version and that i think is um is is or like is the important part of doing that analysis and it's already hard enough to manage that supply chain so if you could if you could find that uh, a way to detect those things like are you using the vulnerable are you using the vulnerable method of the vulnerable version that would make engineering lives a lot easier uh, but that's that's sort of i think the the crux of the problem is that all of these dependencies and subdependencies and subdependencies that you have uh, that will break your product if you update them and then navigating the challenge of that through project management is something that security has to understand like where we where we cave and where we push on critical vulnerabilities like it's gonna it's i would say that it's not impossible but it becomes increasingly difficult especially with legacy applications to keep things up to date and secure uh when you are also trying to ma maintain a live product right it's not something that we're burying in the in the ground and trying to make necessarily the most secure for every single application that is on the field um thoughts on that yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. You have to, if you're going to choose to do that and keep your, your systems up to date, you have to do it early and often. Uh, that, to me, like dependency management is like the student loans of technical debt. Like you're just, if you ignore it, you'll never recover. You'll never recover. Um, and and, that, and that's that's the most frustrating part for me in engineering is like these tools are available. There's any dependency framework you're using has the ability to scan your dependencies, see what's vulnerable, see what's out of date even see what's conflicting with other tendencies. And if you're, you know, actively doing that and cleaning up your stuff, it's pretty manageable. But I've been, I've spent, I've had like, you know, a Maven application, for example, and there's a plugin that lets you spit out, you know, dependencies that are at risk. And, you know, just for fun, I decided to load it up and, you know, 50 things popped up and it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see, see to that another day. That's fine. Um, yeah. And then it hits security and, and really like to me, if, if your application is that state, like my, my go-to thought is like, what would be the repercussions if we just built it out and started over? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it is a balance. And what I would say is security, you know, product security engineers, security engineers, uh, what you need to understand is that sometimes you're going to have to to cave to not updating something because it's going to break the product and you're going to have to wait until product engineering is able to catch up to that because it's so far behind. Um, obviously it'd be great if we, you know, if you, if you are starting fresh and you are sort of in the, in the thick of it, then encourage those product engineers and try to get that, that uh, discipline in early to make sure things are updated. And so I would say if you're a product engineer, you know, update it as often as you can, because you will regret it. It's almost like a generational problem, right? It might, you might be able to get away with it for a year, two years, three years, not updating that thing. It's working. I don't need to touch it. Um, you know, I, I'm going to focus on the new stuff, but one day, one day a partner or a client or, um, you know, an integration or something is going to require you to update that to the latest version. And then the rain of fire will come from security to like, you know, update this because we can't move forward. And now you're the blocker secure. And then security is like sitting back. I've been telling you to update for two years and uh, yep. you know, you're, 
and then you're you're sort of stuck with it. So there is a balance, you know. Um, and I think the way that we've found that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, is to have like a limit on how how far you can push those things, right? It needs to be if it's going to be a big problem, that has to be its own project, right? We have to update, you know, to the latest version of whatever um, spring. Uh, so, you know, that that's a year long project. So we're going to plan that out and that has to be handled as its own thing. Just yeah. Like any other tech debt. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think, you know, security pushing for those, those changes is, is the sign of a company, company maturing, which means you're usually in the game really, really late. So, you know, you know pulling in DevOps for this, the best way to do this is to have your builds and your, your automation actually do these checks for you and prevent deployment. But again, you know, security waving the finger will usually be too late, and by that point, you you get angry developers who say, "I need to get I need to get this out the door. There's no way I can do this. Can you just give me one more week, or let me just have this one deploy?" And then you start playing, you know, the five stages of three-bit security with your dependencies, and it's just yeah. it's just a whole mess. Yeah, I mean, and part of this is the real world, right? Ideally, and you know, I've I've been in organizations where security has the ability to block builds. And uh, engineers understand that, and engineers are happy, not, I wouldn't say happy to update things and keep things up to date, but they understand that it's a necessary thing that they have to do. Right. It's the, you know, it's the grunt work that they have to complete, and security monitors that. The relationship isn't any worse off for it. I've also been in organizations where, you know, engineers are, are VIPs, security is a second class citizen. Uh, and it goes through, and as a security engineer, you're going to have to deal with that at some point, whether you're a consultant or in-house or whatever. So you're going to have to handle that on your side too, but it is a balance. So you have to figure out a way to work through that in either case. Yeah. yeah. No, I'd, I'd say like it's one of those things, right? We're like, like anything, right? Managing a smaller delta of like, hey, I have these handful of vulnerabilities is always going to be a lot easier than, hey, you know, almost all of my dependencies are out of date and vulnerable at this point, right? And, and you know, it, it, and I think it's one of those things, like Simon said, it's a maturing organization maturity thing, right? Where if you are as, as part of, you know, your your software development lifecycle, you're fixing these things, you're patching these vulnerabilities, you're never going to get into a situation where you're like, everything is vulnerable, right? You're going to, you're going to catch those things a lot earlier on and you're going to basically be better for it because you're never going to get into that situation where you just are like, I have to completely start over because this, this is unsalvageable. Right. And I think that that's kind of an important thing of, you know, maintaining that small, you know, that, that small chunk of work as opposed to like, yeah, this is an unfathomable amount of, of sprints that will be required to rewrite everything. Yeah, everything is broken. <laughs> How did this happen? I don't understand. Yeah. Um, so look, I mean, we've been going for a while on this, and I think that we've, I, I mean, I, I find it interesting that we sort of cut out some things that are solvable as a as a team, right? And they're not sort of these, uh, these exploit-heavy, oh, those are the cool vulnerabilities that uh, we can attack uh, sort of viewpoint. So I appreciate the insight there. Uh, and I think we've covered some good things, but... Uh, we're coming to the the end of this this episode, you know, trying to keep to that um, you know easy listening mark. Uh, any final words you all want to throw out there on the OWASP top ten or um, or anything else that's brought to mind before we before we sign off? OWASP top ten, it has a table of contents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just a really really cool way to almost like create a communication channel for us to talk about. How to address security issues not from security but from a from a just an organization as a whole so love it 
Cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from my perspective as a, you know, in our training episode, uh, we talked about my preference for video based training. Uh, and in this, in this case, I will encourage everyone to, if you're watching the videos and getting the lowdown in the OWASP top 10, go to the source material, read everything that you can about it. It's uh, it's much, much more fulfilling in this case. Uh, so I'll encourage folks to do that. This is, you know, one thing that I happily read and, uh, and dig into after I've gotten that initial sourcement or after I've gotten that initial video hit as we've talked about. So that wraps up uh, this ninth episode of Relating to DevSecOps. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want to, to reach out to us or talk to us, uh, we have a few ways that you can do that. You can reach us on Twitter at r the number two DSO. Uh, you can email us at email us at uh, security at r2dso.com. And you can always visit our website, www.r2dso.com, uh, in order to, uh, to just have a listen on the web. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week if we don't have any technical difficulties this week. Uh, thanks again. Signing off. <laughs>